0: We'll see. It says, bam, Obadiah. All right, so I understand that you guys have been going through your Route 66 series, uh, covering an overview of the books of the Bible, and I think that's a wonderful idea. And I know, I know what's happened, because, I mean, for the last weeks and, and months, every time you showed up, you're like, why are we not to the 31st book in the Bible yet, right? I mean, all of December, you were like, Christmas, psh, ski trip, psh, I need... Obadiah, right? That's, that's what you were after, and that's why you're all here, and most of you are sad that you showed up, and it's me now, and too bad, you're stuck, and you're sitting here, and if you get up and walk out, we'll all see it, all right? So, Obadiah, you can turn there in your Bible, Obadiah chapter 1. If you turn to Obadiah chapter 2, uh, you have problems, okay? And uh, Obadiah is one of the, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament, It's one of the shortest books in the Bible, 1st and 2nd John in the New Testament are shorter, Uh, Jude is pretty close, but it's a really, really good book. So I think what we're going to do is we are going to pray, and then we're going to start walking through Obadiah together, all right? God, you're good and kind, you are kind to bring us here tonight to study your word together, and God, we are so thankful that your word is clear on who you are, what you are like, how you think about the world and about your people and God, I pray that you would bless us tonight, that we would understand your word, even, even one of these minor prophets that sometimes we're not as familiar with, that it would be helpful for us as we are reminded of your commitment and love for your people and of your commitment to justice for your enemies. And so we pray that you would bless us tonight. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you all are like me, but sometimes... I look out at the world, and I'm on news apps or social media or something like that, and and I think the more that I hear of the outside world, the more I think, this place is falling apart, right? It's coming apart at the seams, and evil ideology and wicked people are rampant, and it feels like it's just snowballing over and over. It's getting worse and worse and worse, and it feels like it's even affecting the people of God, that the, the people that love and serve Jesus Christ are being attacked and maligned and mocked and tortured. You know, interestingly, the Bible tells us that that's exactly what we should expect, that, that the, Bible will, uh, the Bible says that the world will go from bad to worse, that people will continue deceiving and being deceived, that, that it will affect the people of God, that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3. You know, sometimes we're tempted when we hear of these things going on to think, Why, God? What is going on? Are, are you in control? Do you even care? Have you abandoned the people that love you? Well, when we come to Obadiah tonight, it answers that thought, right? Because Obadiah was written to a people that were so much more distraught than we are. They were, they were in situations so much worse than we are. And so we can take comfort as God gives them comfort, writing to them to remind them that he is in control, that he will judge his enemies, that he will protect his people, and that he will set it all right in the end. So tonight, for our theme for Obadiah, we're going to say it... This way, God judges his enemies for the sake of his people. God judges his enemies for the sake of his people. Now, I don't think many of you are Old Testament scholars. I think a few of you are still looking for Obadiah in the table of contents, and I'm okay with that. You've got a couple more minutes. I'm going to give you some background here for you to catch up, okay? So buckle up, campers, we've got some context. Here we go. How did we get here to where Obadiah is situated? The answer is Jacob and Esau. A long time ago, in a land far, far away, about 7,000 miles away, if you were wondering, there lived two boys, twins, brothers, one was named Esau, one was named Jacob. Esau was so named because he came out red and hairy, Jacob was so named because he came out, remember, supplanting his brother, so he was named the manipulator, the trickster, the supplanter, Jacob. These guys were the epitome of sibling rivalry, even in the womb. Genesis 25 tells us that they fought so much inside of their mother that she asked God what was going on. She prayed, and the Lord responded, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other. And here's the key, the older shall serve the younger now, as they grow up, we find out in Genesis 25 that Esau was a man's man, right? He liked to go out and hunt and fish and, and mount things on the walls of his tent, I guess. I don't know if that worked or not. Jacob was a quiet man. He dwelt in his tent, and you remember the story at the end of Genesis 25, where Esau comes back from the field from hunting. Jacob is cooking a red kind of stew, and Esau said to Jacob, "Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished." But Jacob said, "First, sell me your birthright." The genius of capitalism, right? The law of supply and demand. You need something from me. What's the price? It's your birthright. The authority of the firstborn, the double inheritance when their father would die, it's a steep price. Esau, in his foolishness, but ultimately in God's design, fell for it. He sold his birthright because he said, I'm going to die anyway. He's a little dramatic. So here, and it says that Esau despised his birthright. That is code words for Esau lived with a chip on his shoulder till the day he died. He never forgot that moment. Genesis 27 tells us that after Jacob also manipulated and stole Esau's blessing from his father, Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's where it had come to. Later in the chapters in the middle of Genesis, we find out that Jacob moves away for his own safety at the wisdom of his mother. Genesis 36, 8 tells us that Esau moved away as well, and he moved to the hill country of Seir, and it came to be known as Edom, a little strip of land just south of Moab, about 70 to 100 miles long. It's a land of red rocks, now a land of red people, like Esau, banished there because of an incident of red stew. So it came to be known as Edom, red Jacob, remember had his name changed as well, he was Jacob and he became what? Israel. After what incident? When he he wrestled with God all night long. And so he now has a name that means someone who strives with God, someone who who contends or wrestles with God. So now we have a a nation of people named after an incident of red stew, a nation of people named after contending with God. And this doesn't feel like it's going as well as it could, right? Right? We find out that these nations really just were antagonistic to each other for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even when when the nation of Israel tried to come out of Egypt and pass through the land of Edom on the way uh, out from the Exodus toward the Promised Land, Edom denied them passage because of a family feud from hundreds of years before. During the time of King Jehoram, Edom actually rebelled against Judah and set up an independent monarchy. Fascinating that for hundreds of years they they fought each other or got ready to fight each other or finished fighting each other or started over again. Edom, this nation that came from Esau, is the most prophesied against nation in the entire Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Malachi all have specific oracles of judgment against this people, Edom. Edom is the original villain, if you're a fan of superhero movies, okay? Okay. Brings us to the time of Obadiah. You remember your your Old Testament history, 722 B.C., Assyria comes and takes the northern tribes away, 605 up to 586 B.C., Babylon comes in and besieges the southern tribes and takes them away. But Psalm 137.7 tells us something interesting, because Psalm 137.7 tells us that when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, it says, "'Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom,' the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. You see, when Babylon came to attack the people of God, Edom watched, and they loved it. And they cheered on God's enemies who were attacking God's people. Now, why? What, what is the purpose of this letter? Well, this letter from God through Obadiah the prophet is an open letter to Edom for their condemnation and for the good of Judah. The purpose is, of course, to condemn Edom's actions and sinful violence against Judah and to remind his people that that he would still keep his promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham that he would protect his people and he would curse those who cursed them. Ultimately, he would set it right and he would restore them to the land. Now, it's written by a guy named Obadiah. There are 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament. None of them seem to overlap very well. And so, we don't actually know a whole lot about this guy except that he was given the job by God to bring this letter against Edom. You see, the people of Judah just had their their entire nation decimated. Uh, The numbers don't work out. But imagine if Washington, D.C. just ceased to exist. It's gone. And all the able-bodied people in our country were put on ships for whatever country. Okay, That's what they're dealing with. That's the situation that they're in. And so Obadiah writes to remind them God will not let the guilty go unpunished. God will restore his people at the proper time, but it also reminds us to be patient, right? The kingdom is not fully realized yet. It's not time yet. We need to be patient and wait on the Lord. It reminds us that God will set it right, but he will set it right at the right time. So as we come to, to Obadiah, what we're going to see in this book is four realities of God's judgment, four realities of God's. Judgment, and we're going to talk about judgment a lot tonight, I want to be careful how we think, okay? Because in our story, in Obadiah, judgment is going to be very, very tangible, okay? Bigger, scarier guys with bigger, scarier weapons are going to come in and kill people and attack them, okay? And you're thinking, well, no one's ever tried to kill me in my life, at least not intentionally, so I'm probably doing pretty good, God must be happy with everything that I'm doing, and I'm warning you that sometimes God allows the wicked to go on and brings them to the wretched end later. So you and I need to be very honest with ourselves when we come to this text. Are we one of those people that hates God and is his enemy, and therefore we're going to endure God's judgment whenever he chooses to bring that? Or are we one of God's people, and therefore we can trust in him, and we can be patient, and we can take heart and take courage, because we know that God will set it right in the end. So let's open up our Bibles. We're going to read all of Obadiah because it's only 21 verses, and you might survive, okay? Let's read Obadiah, and then we're going to walk through it together, all right? Here we go. Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, arise, and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined, would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter." Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of the disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion... "...there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead." And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephiroth will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. We'll see in Obadiah four realities of God's judgment. The first reality of God's judgment that we see is that God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is inescapable. Verse 1 tells us that there is a vision and words came from God to Obadiah. He both heard something and saw something, a report from the Lord. And it says, An envoy has been sent among the nations. Arise and let us go against her for battle. God put out a hit on Edom. Verse 2 Tells us God's intention. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. God's direct judgment on this people because of their sins against him and against his people. You see, that's exactly what was supposed to happen. They were supposed to be a small nation. Why? Because the prophecy was, even before they were born, that the older would serve the younger. You see, every time Edom defied Israel and rebelled against Israel, they weren't rebelling against Israel's king, they were rebelling against Israel's God, who had said that the older would serve the younger. That was their lot, that was God's design for them, and they rebelled against it all the time. Even in Romans chapter 9, we see that, right? Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an illustration of the doctrine of election, which by the way, the more you study Jacob and Esau, the more it makes perfect sense, right? Because... Neither Jacob nor Esau deserved anything good from God. And yet, God chose to pass over Esau and give blessing to Jacob. And so we see in Romans 9, 12, and 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Edom defied the plan of God, and yet God kept his promise to Abraham and his people to judge them. Now the question is, it says, You are greatly despised, verse 2. Why? Why was God so angry? What was their great sin? Well, we see in verse 3, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. What was the great sin of Edom? It was the great sin of all time. It's the sin of pride. Pride. Did you know that pride was the first ever sin? Look down at verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read you a passage from Isaiah and Ezekiel, and tell me if you think they're similar. Isaiah 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol. Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen. your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. You see, the verses I just read don't describe the fall of a nation. They describe the fall of Satan himself when he was cast out from God's presence because of pride in his heart. Uh, Kevin DeYoung is a pastor in North Carolina. Uh, He preached a sermon on Obadiah years ago that I listened to. And he said, I've stolen several things for this message from him. But one of the things he said about pride that I thought was very fascinating, he said, Pride is sometimes very obvious, right? You know, the person who talks about themselves too much or looks in the mirror too long or or just whatever, right? You know who they are. If you don't know who they are, it might be you. But Kevin DeYoung said, Pride sometimes comes in three areas. Pride always says something like, I don't need God, I got where I am without God, or I want to be God. Interesting, isn't it? What does that look like for us in our lives? I don't need God. Well, that's someone who abandons prayer and the study of the scripture and church. Why? Because you don't need that. You don't need any of the things. the things God has for you. I got where I am without God. That's someone who is just chronically thankless and, and arrogant in their own heart. Why? Because they can do it all without him. Third, I want to be God. That's someone who's just wrapped up in their own self-pleasure. I want to be in charge. I want to do whatever I want to do. Or maybe it's the other way. I want to be God because I don't trust God to do it right. And that's someone who struggles with anxiety and worry and a lack of trust. Pride is the first, the deadliest, and the truest sin of God's enemies, right? To set yourself up against the Most High and say that you're in charge, that you're good enough, one commentary said pride, like the Edomites had, is spiritual suicide. If pride is the truest mark of an enemy of God, how is it looking in your life? And where do you need to fight pride and fight for humility? Edom was full of pride, and so God called them to judgment. Why were they proud? What were they putting their trust in? Several things. If you are an enemy of God, just know that your position won't save you. Verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock... You see, Edom was built in these these high, craggy cliffs. They built their villages there. Some of these cliffs were 4,000 to 5,500 feet high. No armies could attack them and and destroy them because no one could get to them. Their their fortresses were impregnable. But I love how God says, who will bring me down to earth? And you know, sometimes in the scripture, God says a question and then there's an, an implied answer, right? It's obvious what the answer is. Well, I love right here because it's just as obvious what the answer is, but God still answers. Who will bring me down to earth? From there, I will bring you down. Edom stands up and says, Who, who can get to me? And God says, Pick me. <laughs> Let me try. I will bring you down, says the Lord. One commentator said, Like the eagle, Edom felt secure, but Obadiah's God has no fear of heights. So for you, your position in life, maybe you don't live high up on a cliff, but, but your position in life, where you are in school or work or, or even where you live, your social status, you rely on that more than you rely on the power of God. Are you trusting in that to save you from God on Judgment Day? It won't. Their position couldn't save them. Their resources couldn't save them. Verses 5 and 6, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined, how Esau will be ransacked. God says, everything that you have that you're trusting in, it's not going to save you. Imagine if you went home tonight and you found your apartment or your house broken into, what would that look like? Things would be messy, glass broken, and so on. Some things would be gone, but some things would still be there, right? I mean, that chair that even you don't want. No one's taking that, right? But now imagine if you moved out of your apartment or your house. What does that look like? That looks completely empty. God says, when I'm done with you, it's not going to look like some two-bit thief broke in and took your stuff. When I'm done with you, Edom, it's going to look like no one ever lived here. You're going to be gone. For you and me, man, we finally get a little bit of money, finally get a car that runs, finally get Some things, what is it? What is that thing that you think is going to save you and make your life better? And man, now I can finally relax. Things won't save you. Your relationships won't save you. Verse seven, all the men allied with you will send you forth to the board of the minute. Peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. You see, Edom was trusting in the, the allies they had made through these various wars and battles. Trusting that the people they had fought alongside wouldn't turn to attack them. But in this case, God tells them they are not going to be attacked by an enemy. They will be attacked by an ally. So the question for you and me is, are you relying on the friendships that you have, the relationships you have in your life? Is that what is satisfying you? Is the number one one thing, one desire of your heart that she would finally like you back? That he would finally text you? You would be dating, or engaged, or married, or have kids. The relationships in your life are important. You should work hard at them. You should honor the Lord with them. But they are not the most important thing in your life, minus your relationship with Christ. The relationships with people on this earth are important. You should value them. You should work hard at them. But they will not save you come Judgment Day. Do you understand? The relationships wouldn't save them Their wisdom wouldn't save them. Your wisdom won't save you. God says, will I not on that day, verse 8, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? You see, Edom prided themselves on knowledge and wisdom. They considered themselves philosophers. They were on a major trade route. And so they would glean uh, teaching and, and instruction from Europe and from Arabia and India. And they thought they knew it all. But God says their wisdom was no match for him. You remember in Job chapter 5 verse 12, God frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. What about you? Are you you trusting in your own wisdom, your own education, how smart you are? You think you can get yourself out of these situations? Do you often think, man, I just always know what to do? You see, God wasn't impressed with Edom's wisdom, and and I'm going to burst your bubble here. God's not impressed with your wisdom either. And I know because, you know, your junior English teacher in high school said you were really going places and you believed them. If you're one of God's people, why would you rely on your own wisdom when you have the wisdom of the Father? Your wisdom won't save you. Your skills won't save you. Verse 9, your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman. Teman was one of Esau's grandsons, name of one of the capital cities there. The Edomites were proud of their military might, their mighty men, the strength of their warriors. They could defeat much larger armies because of the guerrilla warfare they conducted from their high craggy cliff villages. So the question is, do you rely too much on your own skill and talent that God has given you to use for his glory, and you're using it for your own benefit, your own comfort? Matthew Henry (laughs) says, it is vain to depend upon mighty men for our protection if we have not an almighty God for us, and much less if we have an almighty God against us. You understand that there is no reason to trust in your own power or in the power of your heroes on earth if God is against you. There's no match. So looking at this list, what is it that's too easy for you to trust in? If you're not in Christ, which one of these things are you trusting in to to make your life okay, to save you when it comes down to the end? If you are in Christ, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, which one of these things are you tempted to rely on when you should be relying on your Father? You see, we have to be careful that we cannot take on the thought processes of Edom and say we are fine and let the arrogance of our heart deceive us. If we are God's enemies, then we have to humble ourselves before God takes all of these things away and brings us to judgment. God's judgment is inescapable. Nothing is going to stop you from God's wrath. Only God can do that. The second thing we find out about God's judgment is God's judgment is justified. God's judgment is justified. You say, all of this this destruction that he's going to bring against Edom Did they really need all that? Of course they did. God is perfect in his justice. Justice is the foundation of his throne. But notice the sins. We've talked about their pride. But notice these sins that God is specifically angry about. First, we find out that they attack God's people. Verse 10, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. Verse 14, do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. You see, what would happen was, they were watching Babylon destroy the southern tribes, destroy the the capital city of Jerusalem, and they would stand at the crossroads, and any refugees that got away from the Babylonians, Edom would stand and they would cut down men, women, and children as they fled for their lives. God said, you will be covered with shame. Shame covers you like a sheet. You have done violence to your brethren When they should have come to Jacob's aid, right? The older shall serve the younger. They should have come and helped. And instead they waited, they participated, and they attacked their brethren, God's people. God says he will punish them severely. They will be cut off forever. Just so you know, if you attack God's people, God will return the favor. He doesn't take it lightly. Not only did they attack God's people, that's bad enough, right? But notice... They approved of the attacks on God's people. Look at verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, you too were as one of them. You you stood aloof, you stood opposed, you, you stood there and watched and approved and you said, yes, that's what we were hoping for. Edom was acting like Babylon was their brother when really she was their enemy. They should have come to their brother's aid, but instead they stood aloof. And they approved of the attacks on God's people. Third, they enjoyed the attacks on God's people. Look at this wickedness. Verse 12, do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boast in the day of their distress. See these three words, gloat and rejoice and boast. Gloat is to look at approvingly. Rejoice is to to enjoy and to to be merry at, to be glad at. Boasting is to even use it for your own benefit, to build yourself up because of what's happening to others and their destruction. I want to stop right there and take a a quick application break. Let's take one from each side. If we are in the place of Judah, the place of God's people, we need to be very careful in our lives that that even though we live very, very good lives, uh, I hope you all know, Your lives are so easy. They're so good. You live good lives. But know that if you love Jesus, eventually there will come a time where it will be hard. You will be persecuted for that. The Bible says that. And we need to expect that. We can't be surprised when persecution and insult come against God's people. We will be mocked and attacked. But think about it from the other side. God is judging Edom for finding joy when his people are destroyed. You see, Christians are never allowed to find joy in the distress of others. Why? Because that's not a reflection of the heart of God. Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live Proverbs seventeen five He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. It is not okay for Christians to delight in someone else's misfortune, no matter how evil that person might be. The closest thing we get is saying, Lord, use what is going on in their life to bring them to repentance. But even God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So, we've seen that God's judgment is inescapable and seen that God's judgment is justified. Look at these terrible, wicked people attacking and enjoying attacking God's people. Third, we find out that God's judgment is complete. God's judgment is complete. See this in 15 and 16, verse 18. Verse 18 says, The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be as stubble. Notice that it says the day, the day of their destruction, the day of their misfortune. We saw that in the last couple couple verses. That day goes over and over to remind them of that day. The day that Jerusalem fell, that's the day of your judgment because of what you did. But notice also that he says in verse 15, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now you've heard Pastor Tom say before, the day of the Lord is, is a day of reckoning, a day of judgment on a certain people. Properly, the day of the Lord... We're actually going to talk about in first Thessalonians in a couple weeks on Sunday night comes at the end when God pours out his judgment and wrath on the whole world. But this temporal day of the Lord or Edom's day of the Lord, if you will, describes here their judgment. And then we are also looking ahead and the timeline is blurring a little bit. We're going to see what happens to all the nations at the end of time. Notice God's judgment is complete. And when we say that, we mean two things here. One, that means that God's judgment is impartial. That is, it's fair, it's just, okay? And so verse 15, the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Your your dealings, your recompense, that, that which is rightly owed. Edom earned a wage. And what was it? It was God's judgment on them because of their sin, But notice that that God is is just in this. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. It's perfectly impartial. Ephesians 6, 9, God says, uh, Paul writes that there is no partiality with God. 1 Peter 1, 17 says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. You see, we live in a world that has no sense of justice. They have have no no barometer for what is truly right and good because they have abandoned the truth of the scripture. There's a lot of people in our world that talk about justice in all kinds of contexts and they always paint our God somehow as the one who is harsh and intolerant and yet we need to stand on the scripture and say our God's justice is always impartial. Our God's justice is, is always right. It's always justified. It's always perfectly righteous. Our God and his judgment is complete. It, it's impartial. But secondly, when we say God's judgment is complete, we also mean that it's not partial. Now, this is a soapbox for another time, but English has two meanings for the word partial, and only one of them has a negative form. And We can talk about that more later if you want to. It frustrates me, but that's okay. God's judgment is not partial. That is, it's exhaustive. Verse 16, Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. Apparently, when Edom came and, and destroyed Jerusalem, they came onto Mount Zion and they had a large drinking party. In the Old Testament, it's often reflected that drinking has to do with drinking the cup of God's wrath. Like in Job 21.20, let his own eyes see his decay and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. God says to Edom, you know how you had that whole drinking thing? You're going to drink, but not anything you want. You're going to drink the cup of my wrath. And notice, they will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. Interestingly, a couple 200 years after the events described here, Edom left their flank exposed and another people group came and pushed them out of Edom. They went into southern Judah, and they became known as the, not Edomites, but the Idumeans, which produced such wonderful people as Herod the Great. Okay. What's fascinating is that because that other people group pushed Edom out of their land, for hundreds of years, liberal scholars have tried to use Edom as a reason to reject the Bible, because they say there is no actual physical evidence that Edom ever existed. And we say... That's perfect, because that's what the Bible says. God said they would be as if they had never existed. Verse 18, the house of Jacob will be a fire, but the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will be completely and utterly consumed. It says there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. Remember how Edom had stood and cut down the survivors that ran away from Jerusalem, and God says you're not going to get the chance to run away. No survivors. Can can we stop for just a minute and and take note of the fact that we are thankful that God is just and impartial? Because guys, let's be really honest. If God can change his mind, you and I are in big, big trouble, right? If God can decide tomorrow that, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, maybe that wasn't quite good enough. Then we have no hope. And as Paul said, we are the most to be pitied. But we care that God has a single standard of righteousness himself, that he is just, that he is always impartial. And we find peace in the fact that God will fully execute his justice at the right time. The things that go on in this life that that just aren't right, they'll be dealt with. God will deal with them in his time because he's perfectly just and his judgment is always complete. But remember... This letter was written as an open letter to Edom. This is a pronouncement of judgment on them. But it never got to Edom. (laughs) Only Judah read it. So why would Judah need to read God's judgment on another people? That brings us to our fourth reality of God's judgment. That God's judgment is for the sake of his people. God's judgment is for the sake of his people. You see, guys, God's judgment... And get this clear in your mind. God's judgment is always, number one, for the sake of his own glory and his own great name. But God's judgment is also just as much for the sake of the people that he loves. God is just in his very nature, in his character. And therefore, when he pours out his justice on his enemies, it is an act of love for his people. We see this in Second Samuel 7.10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Deuteronomy 1.30, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf. Isaiah four four. God is the one who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Joel 3.2, God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people. God acts on behalf of his people. So what are the benefits of this? That God's judgment is for the sake of his people? We see several. First, we notice that God's people will ultimately escape the judgment. Verse 17, on Mount Zion there will be those who escape. Remember how when they ran away from Jerusalem, they thought they would escape, but they didn't because Edom was in the way and their wicked acts kept them from escaping. God says in the end, when it comes to the real judgment, my people will escape my wrath. We see at the end of verse 17, that God's people will be made holy. There will be those who escape and it will be holy. Matthew Henry says, There shall be the Holy Spirit, the holy ordinances, the holy Jesus, and a select remnant of holy souls in whom and among whom the holy God will delight to dwell. Note, where there is holiness, there shall be deliverance. When God delivers us in the end, his people will be made holy, fit to be with him forever. Third, we notice that God's people will possess the possessions of their enemies Look at verses 19 and 20. See all these these random places that you have no clue where they are or what they even mean? Well, Glance up here. Look at this map for just a minute. So it says, those of the Negev here will possess the mountain of Esau. There. Those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain. Territory of Ephraim. Territory of Samaria. Benjamin will possess Gilead. Exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, up there. Exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephiroth. Don't even know where that is, maybe even as far as Europe. Who possess the regions of the Negev. Look at that map. It almost appears as if God means to keep His promises to His people that He will restore them to the land that He gave them. Almost like he knew what he was doing. They'll possess the possessions of their enemies. I know it feels sometimes like we're not getting what we should have. God promises. It comes down to it when it really matters. You will have everything you need now, you will have everything he wants to give you in the end. God's people will rule, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6 where it talks about how the saints will judge the world. God's people will rule over the world that he has given them. Revelation 20 talks about how we do that during the millennial kingdom. But the best, the single greatest reason that we know God's judgment is for the sake of his people, the biggest blessing is that they'll be with God. Notice that it says the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Not Babylon's, not Edom's, not even Israel's. The kingdom will be whose? It will be God's. It will be the Lord's. You see, guys, at the end of this age, the next event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church when God, Jesus Christ, will descend from heaven with a shout and he will snatch up, he will rapture his church to be with him. That will set off a seven-year period of God's wrath being poured out on the earth At the end of that seven years, Jesus Christ will return with the armies of heaven, riding a white war horse, wearing a robe dipped in the blood of his enemies, and he will not come for the sake of salvation. He will come to rule with a rod of iron and to judge his enemies. He will come and he will set up a a kingdom on this earth for a literal thousand years where he will rule perfectly. At the end of that thousand years, he he will release Satan and his followers and cast them eternally into the lake of fire, eternal hell, where they will endure torment and destruction for eternity. Then the Lord will bring to pass the new heavens and the new earth, a dazzling, wonderful, splendorous, perfect kingdom fit for eternity, just for his people. A kingdom where righteousness is at home, 2 Peter 3 says, and a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, but the kingdom will be whose, not his people's, it'll be the Lord's. Psalm twenty two twenty eight. 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's. Psalm 47, seven to eight, God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful Psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Isaiah twenty four twenty three 23, The moon will be abashed, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. You remember in Daniel chapter 7, where it says the Son of Man will come up before the Ancient of Days, and he will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And it says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Micah 4, 7, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Zechariah 14.9 The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Luke 1.33 In the prophecy, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Revelation 11.15 The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 19.6 I heard something, like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Guys, (laughs) the kingdom will be the Lord's. He wins. God wins. No matter what is going on in this world, no matter how out of control it feels, no matter how much it feels like the wicked people are in charge, they're not. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Don't forget who's in charge. Don't let your heart be tempted to worry or anxiety or even even, uh, zeal where you feel like you got to go around and fix everything. God is in perfect control. His justice will come at the right time. Uh, The world's not at the mercy of, of the rich and the powerful. It's at the mercy of God. And whatever he wants... Will come to pass. There is one king over this earth. It's Yahweh. It's the God of the Bible. The kingdom will be his. Quote here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary I think wraps it up well. The short book of Obadiah presents a powerful message. It shows what happens to those who reject God's word and his grace, rebelling in foolish pride. During Edom's prosperity, many in Israel could have asked, Why do the wicked prosper? But the voice of Obadiah comes thundering through the pages of the Old Testament and is echoed in the New, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. Obadiah's words underscore the fact of God's justice, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One who responds in obedience to the grace of God has everything to gain, but a person who spurns his grace in pride has everything to lose. God's judgment is inescapable. It's justified, it's complete. It's for the sake of His people. So let me just ask you where you're at. Let me tell you very plainly, you must not be one of God's enemies. His judgment will come. You must repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. Turn from your sin and trust completely in the one who's more holy than you. And if you're one of God's people, stop worrying. (laughs) Know that he loves you. And if he loves you, he will protect you and he will fight for you to the end because God is for his people. God even judges his enemies for the sake of his people. You guys, uh, may have heard that Andrew Peterson song that Pastor Tom likes to quote. I heard it first, by the way. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await. Await the day of his return because he will rise up in the Obadiah says the kingdom will be the Lord's and God fights on behalf of his people. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for the time this evening. We're thankful for your word. Thankful for the truth that you do not leave us abandoned to the evil of this world. We're thankful that that you are not political and changing sides whenever it suits your fancy, but you are, are faithful and you have committed to a people. We're thankful that you love us, that you fight on our behalf, that the kingdom will ultimately be yours, God. We pray that you would remind us to trust in you. We would remember that your justice is perfect and we just have to wait, wait for your return. Thank you for all this in your name. Amen.